Please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, you are welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. The book of Ephesians in those Bibles is on page 976. 976. And if you don't have a Bible, you are certainly more than welcome to take that Bible home. As an aside, before we get started, uh, I want to ask you to say a quick prayer for me. I spent an hour preaching at the Women's County Jail this morning. Uh, So one, just pray for fruit that the Lord would use the preaching of the word there, that he might lead some of those women uh, to know know the Lord, and maybe some of the women there who do know the Lord, that they would be strengthened and encouraged in their walk, particularly in the difficult environment of the county jail. Also, just say a silent prayer for me as uh, I'm kind of feeling it as I get started on this sermon. So I'm going to share a little bit about myself with you. If you've been a member of this church, you probably already know this about me, but if you're not a member of this church, then you might find this interesting if nothing else. Uh, I grew up thinking that I was half white and half Hispanic, only to find out later on in life that I'm not Hispanic at all, and I still don't really know what I am, okay? Now, having said that, I grew up in Southern California in a pretty racially diverse neighborhood. We had more Filipinos than white people. We had Hispanic, we had black Then at the age of 12, after being homeless for a little while, my family moved out here to Alabama where we moved immediately into Section 8 housing. And the predominant uh, ethnic background of of that uh, was African American. So I spent basically the years of 12 to 18 in a peer group of nothing but African Americans. And so I kind of walked into adulthood thinking that I most closely identified with the black community. Well, I joined the Army at the age of 19 with my wife. The first place that we got stationed was in Seattle. If you've never been to Seattle, it's the whitest place <laughs> in the United States, maybe other than Portland. There's a, there's a battle going back and forth. Um, and so I didn't really feel at home there. And then after that, we got stationed in Atlanta. Now, in Atlanta, we joined a predominantly African-American church. Uh, for a number of different reasons, but I thought, you know, finally, I'm going to finally feel at home again. You know, I've been away from the African-American community, and now I'm coming back, and I think I'm going to kind of feel more at ease. But the opposite happened. I actually felt more uncomfortable there than ever, and I came to find out the reason why a couple of years later. You see, just because I grew up in the African-American community didn't mean that I understood it, Uh, What I really identified with in those years growing up was not the African-American community, it was the poor community. It was the uneducated community. It was the uncouth community. And it just so happened to be that where I lived in the projects of North Alabama, African-American and those things lined up. But at this church in Atlanta, I found a group of African-Americans who came from basically middle-class families that were college-educated and more cultured than anything I'd ever experienced growing up. So my myopic view of the African-American community left me a little confused there. So I think around this time, I began to have a little bit of an identity crisis. I couldn't really connect with the poor whites, even though I grew up poor, because I wasn't from the country, and most of the poor whites I knew were from the country. And Lawrence County and me, we just, no offense to anyone who's here, and I'm I'm learning how to love you, but like, it didn't, it wasn't a natural fit, right? I didn't feel at home in the African-American middle class community where I found myself because I wasn't middle class. I didn't come from education or anything like that. I didn't feel at home back in the projects, right here in Decatur where I used to sell drugs. I went back and I thought, well, okay, finally I can just go back to my people in these same streets where I used to run and I can feel connected here. And that didn't happen because, well, I had changed since I used to run those streets. I had changed in a number of different ways. 
And so I, I felt really like a stranger in that land. And uh, I definitely didn't feel at home in middle-class white suburban churches, you know, of the Southern Baptist variety. I say that saying now that I'm basically a Baptist. I just didn't feel at home there, you know, the soccer moms and the minivans, and now my wife is a soccer mom who drives a minivan. And, you know, it just, uh, everybody there was wearing suits. I never owned a suit in my life. And then you add to that the reality that I was a Christian, which meant that pretty much any environment where I found myself, I just didn't feel at home, right? People are making jokes that I don't laugh at. People are talking about things that they care about that I'm actively opposed to. So I was having a bit of an identity crisis. I found myself asking the question over and over again, who am I? I know that I'm a Christian, but I don't really know much more than that. Now, I'm not sharing this story with you as kind of a an interest piece this morning. I'm sharing it with you because I think it's connected to the book of Ephesians. It certainly is in my life. You see, the thing that led me out of this identity crisis was studying the book of Ephesians. And I think the reason why is because the book of Ephesians is written to a people in order to help shape their identity. This book was written, as we can see here from the first few verses of the book of Ephesians, it's written to those the saints who are in Ephesus is written to the church in Ephesus, and the, the saints in Ephesus had a weird background, okay? The, the churches in and around Ephesus came from a people whose background was pr- predominantly pagan, and they were also Jewish. So just imagine that one day you're a faithful Jew, you come from a faithfully, faithful Jewish background, and then you're a disciple of Christ. You come to accept the reality that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah, and it completely flips your world upside down. You don't really know how to live in light of this reality that the Messiah has finally come. And by the way, he's not like anything you thought he was going to be. You thought he was going to be a warrior poet king who was going to come and destroy the Romans. And now he's actually a guy who came and died on the cross and says, now you need to die too. Or imagine that you come from the pagan background in Ephesus. One day you know yourself as Alexander, the priest of Artemis. And then you get saved. And the next day, now you know yourself as Artemis, the disciple of Jesus Christ. How do you make sense of that? Maybe you've experienced something similar to this in your own life, in light of your conversion to Christ. You knew yourself as one thing, and then Jesus Christ came and he saved you. He snatched you out of the fire. He completely flipped your world upside down. And now you know yourself as somebody that your unconverted self would have never even recognized. And maybe you haven't had anybody help you work through that identity crisis. Well, the book of Ephesians was written in part to help you make sense of who you are in light of who God is and what he has done for us in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. So let's read verses one and two, and then we're going to dive into the book of Ephesians head first. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Amen. Father, would you please bless your word this morning. We know that everything else in this universe will fade, but your word remains and it cannot be shaken. Amen. If you see me drinking from this purple cup, the members of this church know why. (laughs) This morning's sermon is going to kind of serve as an introduction to the book. 
And we're going to kind of look at the book through the lens of these first two verses. We're going to be using these first two verses to answer four questions that I think spring from the text. And those four questions will serve as your four points. So note takers, here are your four points. Number one, who is Paul? Number two, who are the Ephesians? Number three, who are you? And number four, who is Jesus? If you didn't get all those, it's fine. I'll restate them as we go through. So point number one, question number one, who is Paul? The letter begins with Paul identifying himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? You can see that in verse one. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul opens up several of his letters this way, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Thessalonians, uh, Colossians. And uh, this is Paul's giving his bona fides. This is kind of Paul just giving you his initial argument as to why you should listen to what he has to say. Why does anything that Paul has to say in this letter matter? Well, it's because Paul is an apostle. Now, the New Testament has two primary ways that it uses the word apostle, okay? One is it refers specifically to the 12 that were chosen by Jesus Christ and commissioned by Christ to go out and to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to do the work of planting the church and laying the foundation of the new covenant people of God, okay? And then, you know, minus one plus the replacement for Judas and then Paul on the road to Damascus. The math works out, okay? But those are the apostles that uh, are kind of what we refer to as capital A apostles, okay? But then you have a more general term that's used. Where it's, it's the same term, it's the same term used more generally, and it just refers to anybody who's sent out. Apostolos just means messenger or sent one, and anybody who's sent out by a king or by a governor or by a church is an apostle, so anybody who goes out with a message is an apostle. Jesus is referred to as an apostle. Angels are referred to as apostles, okay? There's just anybody with a, mes- uh, with a message. Incidentally, long before the word missionary uh, ever existed, the word apostle was also used in the life of the early church to refer to what we now know of as missionaries. Somebody sent out with a mission from a local church to go take the message of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world, Okay. So if you hear me talk about capital A apostle and lowercase apostle, lowercase a apostle, now you have those categories in place. You should know that capital A apostles no longer exist. So if you get a flyer inviting you to Apostle Jones's barbecue and church service, you know, you should just probably stay as far away from that as possible. Uh, If somebody says apostle in English, we'll probably just say, hey, if you mean missionary, that's okay. But capital A apostles that were appointed specifically by Jesus no longer exist. So what this means for the Ephesian church that Paul introduces this letter this way is that they need to pay attention to what he has to say. They need to pay close heed. They need to give weight to the words of this letter. Okay, Paul is not just somebody or just a nobody. He is a subject matter expert who was commissioned by Christ himself with a very specific message that he has for them by the power of the Holy Spirit to build them up in their faith. Okay, now the other aspect that we need to consider of Paul's apostleship is that he's an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. If you remember the story of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts, then you'll know that Jesus specifically told Paul, hey, I'm sending you out as my special apostle to the Gentiles. In in Jesus' own words in Acts 26, as Paul retells it, we can hear him say this. 
I will rescue you, Paul, from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them, that is, to the Gentiles, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of God to Satan. Now, even though Paul was sent specifically as an apostle to the Gentiles, he still would go to the Jews, right? If you remember Romans 1.16, what is the gospel? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Then Paul qualifies that, right? He says, to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. You're going to see that theme played out also in the book of Ephesians. But here's the way that would work in Paul's ministry. If you read the book of Acts, you'll kind of see this over and over again. Paul shows up in a new city. First thing he does, makes a beeline to the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue. He tries to reason from the scriptures with the Jews that Christ is the long-awaited Messiah. And he, you know, usually just gets kicked right out, okay? It could be a day. It could be three months. But Paul doesn't last long in the synagogue. And then immediately after that, he goes and he takes the gospel to the Gentiles in that city after he's been rejected by the Jews. So you can see this in Corinth. He was arguing in the synagogues in Corinth and he was kicked out and he went to the house of Titius Justus. It was only after being rejected by the Jews in Thessalonica and Berea, and I know you're thinking, wait, wasn't he accepted in Berea? Well, for a little while, but then a great disturbance arose concerning the way and he was kicked out of there too. And it was only after he was expelled by the Jews in Thessalonica and Berea that he eventually made his way to Athens where in Acts 17 we have this famous sermon where Paul stands up in the Areopagus and he preaches the gospel to the pagan philosophers in that land. In Acts chapter 19, which our sister so kindly read so much of for us this morning, uh, we know that the gospel made its way more fully to the Gentiles in Ephesus because the Jews rejected Paul's argument for Christ as the Messiah after three months, three months of arguing and disputing and preaching in the synagogue. We read, Luke tells us at the end of those three months that the Jews became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So there might have been some private backdoor maligning the way, but now it all goes public. So Paul left them. He took his disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. We don't know much about the lecture hall of Tyrannus except that it was, it was likely a Gentile location where he interacted with Gentiles who were interested in the gospel. So that was Paul's typical pattern. He would go to the Jews. After they didn't receive him, he would wipe the dust from his feet and then he would go to the Gentiles. And this is something that you really have to understand if you want to understand the book of Ephesians. In Ephesus, which we read this morning, I wanted us to read the whole chapter so you could get a a real feel of what Paul's ministry was like in Ephesus. The Lord was moving powerfully through Paul amongst the Gentiles in that city, okay? Uh, listen Listen to Luke talk about it. He says this, Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So a good old-fashioned book burning, amen? And they counted the value of them, and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. How much is that? Don't know. It's a whole lot, okay? So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I've never had the privilege of going to a book burning. I'm sure it's a lot of fun. But I've heard of churches that do things like this. You know, bring your Harry Potter and your Led Zeppelin albums and we're going to have a good old-fashioned book burning, okay? They usually find their proof text in, in that account right there from the book of Acts. Now, what I find interesting here is that it was not the church 
that called for the pagans to come and bring forth their pagan literature to be burned. No. What happened is that these pagans, they they heard the gospel of Christ, they received the gospel of Christ, and then out of their own will and volition, they brought forth the things that were evidence of their old life and their old false religion, and they themselves set it on fire. Not as kind of a petty superficial thing that I think you would see in a church today that were to, do, that were to carry out a book burning, but rather as a public devotion to Christ. As a way, it's, it's almost kind of like a picture of baptism where we're doing away with the old and we're participating in the new. So many pagans came to know Christ through Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus that it began to disrupt the local economy. Okay, There was a city there Excuse me, there was a silversmith there named Demetrius. Demetrius saw the, the local uh, economy built around the temple of Artemis, also known as the temple of Diana. He saw that the economy was beginning to fold because people weren't buying their idols anymore, okay? And so uh, he basically calls together the equivalent of an ancient craftsman union, and he gives them a speech to kind of rally them up against Paul and his ministry, and this is what he says. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Paul is famous for turning people away from the Gentile faith and bringing them to Christ. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. They're not just worried about their economy. They're worried that people are going to stop going to these pagan temples because of the impact that Paul is having. This eventually led to a riot which forced Paul to flee the city. So how much of an impact was Paul having amongst the Gentiles in, in, in Ephesus? A significant one. And that's where we see this book or the need for this book arising, right? Paul is writing this letter to a church full of of Gentile converts, people who came from a pagan background. Uh, Paul is specifically, through a large chunk of the letter, going to address the tension that exists in a church with people from Jewish and pagan backgrounds. He begins to address the Gentiles specifically. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, so now he's speaking directly to the Gentile Christians in the church, Then in chapter 2, he goes on to explain the way that Jews and Gentiles can peacefully coexist for the gospel, uh, in light of the gospel. Chapter 3 explains how the Gentiles fit into the plans of salvation that God has had since before the foundation of the world. In chapter 4, it addresses unity in the church. And then at the end of chapter 4, Paul goes on to even tell the Gentiles the ethical implications of their belief in the gospel. He says basically this, now you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You came from that world, Gentiles, but you're not a Gentile anymore. You identify as a Christian, so you can't live like that anymore. If you don't understand this reality, then you're not going to understand much of the rest of the book of Ephesians as we walk through it together. The final aspect uh, of Paul's apostleship that we need to consider is what it says here in this verse. It says that Paul was an apostle by the will of God. Now, by the way, if you're worried that this one point is taking a really long time, this is the longest point of the sermon, okay? The next year you're going to be rapid fire, so hang with me as I take one sip from this purple cup. Now, what I want you to see here is that Paul's decision to follow Christ 
Paul's decision to be an apostle was in fact not his decision at all. Paul goes out of his way to tell us that this, this apostleship that he has received, it was not in his will for his life. Rather, it was God's will for his life. You know, Paul was not just a regular Jew. At one point in the book of Philippians, Paul refers to himself as the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Insert Moses joke. But this is, you know, if you want to say it more crassly, which you could probably say is Paul was super Jewish, right? Like, so he goes on in the book of Philippians to give his super Jewish credentials. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. That may not mean anything to you, but the tribe of Benjamin was kind of like, you know, a pretty big deal. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was very Jewish. Now, one of the things that Paul says about himself in that verse that maybe you didn't notice, maybe it didn't stick out to you as, that much was that he was so zealous for his, for his faith, for his Jewish faith, that he was a persecutor of the church. I think that's putting it lightly. You know, Paul was a first century stormtrooper, okay? Uh, after overseeing the stoning of Stephen, the first deacon in Acts chapter seven, Luke tells us in Acts chapter eight that Paul was, quote, ravaging the church. It says that he was entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Paul, in his testimony to King Agrippa, he describes his work as a persecutor of the church, and he describes it as a work of obsession. Listen to his words. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from synagogue to from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. He was obsessed with persecuting God's people. He reminds me of Aloise Bruner. If you've never uh, heard that name, he was a special appointment by Adolf Eichmann in the Third Reich by Germany in World War II, and he was appointed to carry out uh, the final solution in the region of France. The final solution was kill all the Jews, okay? And Adolf Eichmann took a special interest in hunting down Jews who were trying to live openly as Gentiles, right? As Germans, as French, as, as whatever. He would try to, he made it his life, life's work. The movie Inglorious Bastards has a, a character in it that is specifically built around this person whose whole life obsession was finding Jews, imprisoning Jews, and killing Jews, and this very much reminds me of the Apostle Paul and what he was doing with the Christian church as a leader of the Jewish religion. The reason why I'm showing you all this is because I want you to know that the will of Paul was violently opposed to Christ. The will of Paul was violently opposed to Christianity and the church. But the will of God is what reigns supreme in the life of Paul. Paul's will did not win the day. God's will won the day. Listen to Paul's conversion story in his own words. Listen. 
On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. So I'm going around doing what I told you I like to do. I'm going to kill Christians. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint to you as to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul's will for his own life was to hunt down Christians. But the will of Christ for Paul's life was for him to be saved and to add to the number of those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now this understanding that the will of God reigns supreme over the will of man, not just in salvation, but in all of our lives. You're gonna see this theme. You, actually, if you just read the New Testament, you'll see it kind of permeate all of Paul's writings, but you'll also see it come up again and again, even in the first couple of chapters of Ephesians. Four times in the first chapter of Ephesians alone, as Paul is talking about the spiritual blessings that we as Christians receive in Christ from God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, it often uh, is four times it's connected back to God's will for our lives. Now, some of the people in this room this morning, uh, they might see their story as the story of the Apostle Paul. They might see a lot of continuity there. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, well, I mean, the exact details don't line up, but yeah, that's basically my life. I was a rebel against God, and I was an enemy of him and his people. And so I want to ask you, how, what kind of language do you use to describe your conversion experience? You see, the reason why I ask is that it seems like Paul goes out of his way to use language that points to God and the sovereignty of his will in his salvation experience. Whereas I think in most evangelical churches, what you'll find is language that's quite the opposite, right? We'll use language like, yeah, when I asked Jesus into my heart or when I received Christ. But it seems like Paul, after he kind of gives his bona fide, after he says, yeah, I'm an apostle, he's quick to follow it up by by deflecting anything away from himself and giving all the glory back to God and the supremacy of his will. He says, I'm not an apostle based off of anything I wanted, based off my own wisdom, my own godliness. I'm an apostle because God did this in me. Paul does this in five of his letters. First and second Corinthians, Colossians, second Timothy. Here, he says, yeah, I'm an apostle, but I'm only an apostle because God's will reigns supreme in my life. So one of the ways that, uh, after I noticed this, one of the ways that I tr practically tried to change my language when sharing my testimony was to use language that sounds more like Jesus saved me, right? And even when I'm talking to people, if, I, if I'm asking to hear this, their testimony, and you've probably been out to lunch with me where I've done it with you, I've said, hey, tell me your story. How did Jesus save you? That's That's intentional. That's a, that's a question phrased a particular way in light of the certain emphasis that I see in the language of Scripture, in the Apostle Paul. 
something to consider. Maybe instead of saying when you ask Jesus into your heart, maybe you should talk in a way that shows more reverence for the sovereignty of God in the call of your life. Now, switching gears here. Some of you in this room have never known a time where you didn't know the Lord. I praise God for that. I praise God that you came from a family where you grew up hearing the scriptures, you grew up trusting in Christ and loving Christ. That is my prayer for my children. I hope that they never know a time where they didn't know Jesus. I want them to be babes in evil. And so maybe you're thinking this doesn't really apply to you. But I want you to know that you probably have a Paul in your life, right? Husband, wife, son, daughter, uncle, aunt, friend, co-worker, I don't know. Maybe you have somebody in your life who seems like their will is hell-bent on being as far away from God as possible, who just is making it seem to you on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis that they are as least interested in Christ as they could possibly be and that they are never going to come to know Jesus as their Savior. I think from this reality of Paul, And his salvation in this story, what we can find is a great encouragement to not give up on those people. To not stop praying. To not just throw up our hands and go, yeah, you know what, I I I don't think I can have that conversation one more time. Or I don't think I can pray that prayer one more time. I think we have reason to maintain hope that God can and that he might even do something and save them. I don't know what the situation might be in your life. I don't know who the Paul is in your life. That, that you think might be hopeless. I don't know if it's drug abuse or if it's a completely sexually deviant lifestyle or if maybe they're an abortion doctor or maybe they've joined a cult and they live on a hippie commune in North Florida. I don't know what it may be. And I don't care. There's, there's nobody in this room who can come up to me after this sermon and say, Sean, well, actually, you don't understand because the details of the story are X, Y, Z. If you say that to me, I'm just gonna say, no, you don't understand. And you don't know the God who is able to overcome the hard and wicked heart of anyone. If he can save Paul, the persecutor of the church, there's nobody who is outside of his grasp. When Paul gave his salvation testimony before King Agrippa, he spoke of his life kicking against the goads. Now, that's not a phrase we use very often these days, and we're not a very agricultural society anymore. Even in North Alabama, right, we're not very agricultural. And, and we have uh, machines now instead of oxen. So let me explain to you what a goat is, I think. <laughs> let me pull deep from the well of my own experience out there as a farmhand and uh, try to tell you what a goat is, okay? It's a stick. It can be shorter or longer, but it's got a dull end on one side that you grab, and it's got a pointy end on the other side. And if you're out in the field with your oxen trying to work the field, you know, and your oxen gets tired and he doesn't want to go anymore, your donkey, you stab him with it, okay? You poke him with the tip of the goat and you try to get him going. And it works. But sometimes uh, an oxen or a donkey or any animal, they get tired of getting poked and they don't want to go. And it's hot outside. And what they do is they start kicking. They're trying to stop the goad from poking them. And Jesus uses this language in, in uh, the story of Paul's conversion. And he says, Paul, Paul, it is hard to kick against the goads. What this means is that it seems like Jesus had been prodding Paul up to that Damascus Road experience. It seems like Jesus had been poking Paul, trying to get him to move towards himself. But Paul was resisting and kicking and fighting. So you may be wondering, Sean, well, 
Are you saying that people can't resist the will of God at all? No, friends, that's not what I'm saying. You can absolutely resist the will of God. You can absolutely resist the grace of God. You can kick against the goads until you can't. Paul kicked against the goads until Jesus decided that it was time and the kicking was over with and he came and he took over Paul's life and will and heart and he snatched him up by the neck and he drew him away from the fire. Your brother, sister, cousin, aunt, uncle, husband, wife, I know you're thinking, Sean, they're just gonna kick against the goads forever. There's just no hope. But you should know that the hard and stubborn heart of whoever is in your life is no match for the goat of God when he decides that it's time to save someone from their sin. So be encouraged. Continue to pray. I'm not saying that God absolutely will save that person. But I'm saying that God is able. And it seems like it's right in line with his character to get glory for his name by saving people that we think cannot be saved. Point number two. And now we're gonna start to speed up a little bit, okay? Point number two. And I know that you guys would sit here for three hours because this is God's word, but don't worry. These are going to go a little faster. This letter from the Apostle Paul is written, as you can see from the... Uh, sorry, the point of number two is who are the Ephesians? That's the question. Who are the Ephesians? And you can see here in the second half of verse one, it says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. To the saints. That's who Paul is writing to. That's who the Ephesians are. They're saints. Now, if you misunderstand what the word saint means, you're going to make a lot of categorical mistakes as you continue to read the book of Ephesians and try to understand it. A saint is, in the mind of many people, uh, a sort of special forces Christian, right? Somebody who's reached the apex of Christian holiness. They can do things that no one else can do. You know, it's Praying for healing is no problem for them. Why? Well, because they're a saint. How much scripture do they have memorized? All of it. Why? Because they're a saint. They are special, hardcore, hard-charging Christians. Now, you should know that the people who misunderstand, and maybe, maybe you're one of them, what the word saint means, they, they can't be blamed for that because, you know, ideas don't just pop up out of thin air. Bad ideas, misdefinitions, they all come from somewhere, Okay. And the idea that a saint is this special forces top flight Christian, uh, it actually began to develop at some point uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, somewhere around a thousand years ago, okay? And then it continued to cement and proliferate, and then pretty soon it became part of the Roman Catholic dogma. By the time of the Reformation, one of the first things that the reformers began to do was to set out a, a, a redefinition campaign for the word saint. They, tried, they wanted to let all the peoples of Europe where they were carrying out their work know that a saint was just anyone and everyone who was saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you've repented of your sins and trust in Christ, you are a saint. Unfortunately, with that much uh, volume built up in the Roman Catholic Church, it eventually spilt the banks and now just common everyday, even evangelical Protestants have a misunderstanding of what that word means. If you were in our uh, Wednesday night Bible study uh, a couple of months back, you might have remembered me giving you the qualifications to become a Roman Catholic saint. If you weren't here, you're in for a treat. If you were here, uh, I'd encourage you to still pay attention because uh, some things are just better after you've heard them the second or third time. So, the official requirements of becoming a saint in the Roman Catholic Church are as follows. Number one, you have to have at least five years after your death. 
before uh, somebody can begin to analyze your life and make sure you kind of meet the standards. You have to be dead for five years. After you've been dead for five years, you move on to step number two. What happens in step number two is that a bishop, the bishop of the diocese where you lived, he uh, begins an investigation into your life, right? He wants to know, did you live a life that bore fruit? You know, did, did, did you, were you basically like a fair to middling Christian, okay? And if he finds out that you were at least a fair to middling Christian, you receive the honorific title of servant of God. Not bad, but not enough. Point number three, this is what you move on to. From there, further investigation is made into your life. This reminds me of when I was getting a secret clearance with the military, you know? It was like, oh, we're going to dig a little, and then we're going to dig deeper, and then we're going to talk to your family members. So further investigation is made into your life as to whether or not you lived a life of, quote, heroic virtue, end quote. If you don't really know what that means, just think of like Mother Teresa, okay? The streets of Calcutta, feeding poor people, right? Heroic virtue. Number four, the need to verify at least two miracles that you have committed or performed. That's a better word, yeah, two miracles. Now, here's the thing, though. Maybe you just didn't live long enough to commit two miracles. It doesn't matter. If you've got at least one verified miracle on your account, you can have another miracle verified to your account that somebody else did in your name after you died. So Sean dies. Will prays to me as I'm in heaven. Obviously, this is definitely going to happen. And he says, hey, help me find my car keys. You pray to me. I, I talk to God. You find your car keys. Now that miracle is credited to my account. Two miracles. Boom. I'm in there. If you can't get two miracles, don't worry. You're still going to uh, have a, an official title available to you, I think. Uh, yeah, no, I don't have it on here. But if you get those two miracles, then you move on to be officially canonized in the Roman Catholic Church as a saint. I know that this is funny and it seems ridiculous to us, but this is real. People are being taught this by the millions all over the world. They think a saint is a top-flight special forces Christian because that's what they are being taught. But a saint is not a special breed of Christian. Any person, even the least of us, especially the least of us, are saints of God if we've turned from our sin and trusted in Christ. The word saint comes from the Greek word holy. And the word holy is most often used in your Bible to refer to something that has been set apart for a special purpose. The noun saint that's given to us as Christians refers to a people who have been set apart for God's special purposes. You haven't been set apart as distinct from other Christians who aren't as clean as you or as fancy as you or as rich as you or, or as white as you or as black as you or whatever it may be. You are set apart from the world as an instrument in the hand of God. So Paul begins this letter by telling the Ephesians who they are. They are the holy ones of God. They are set apart for his purposes and the glory of his name. Keep this theme in mind because as we begin to walk through the book of Ephesians, we're gonna see that God had this plan to set his people apart since before the foundations of the world. He elected them, he predestined them, he adopted them. And then God the Son came and redeemed and purchased by his blood those whom God the Father set apart since before the foundation of the world. And then the Spirit comes along and seals the holy ones of God to guarantee that they make it from here to heaven. The Ephesians could be described in a number of different ways, but the main word that Paul uses, the main thing that comes to his mind when he describes them is saint, holy one. Point number three. I told you, we're, we're blowing right through it. Point number three. And this is actually... 
more, uh, literally more of a question than a set of propositions. Who are you? Who are you? So yeah, that's, that's the point. Who are you? Are you a saint? Are you someone who's been set apart for the glory of God, set apart from this world, set apart from hell? Well, you may be asking me, Sean, how can I know? How can I know? An, an easy question to begin by asking is, do you profess faith in Christ? Do you profess to be a saint? Do you profess to belong to God? Now, we know, it's, it's 2019, we know that anybody can identify as anything, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. So that's an especially helpful illustration as we try to understand and consider that many people who profess to be Christians, who identify as Christians, are not actually Christians. And they're going to show up on Jesus' doorstep one day in the judgment seat, and they're going to find out that, in fact, they were confused the whole time. So a better question may be, how can I know if my profession of being a saint is accurate? And I think one of the easiest places we can look is just right here in the second half of verse 1. Paul says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So I think one of the main ways that you can actually know that you're a saint, that you can actually know that you belong to Jesus is by asking yourself honestly if you are faithful in Christ Jesus. Am I faithful? If the answer is no, then I don't want you to leave here this morning feeling confident that you're a saint. This is one of the reasons why church membership is so important. You see, our view of ourselves and of our spiritual walk is so often inaccurate. Not just a little inaccurate, I mean like incredibly inaccurate. Your, your view of your spiritual life right now is probably like what you see of yourself when you look in a funhouse mirror. It's you, but it is just incredibly distorted. One of the things that's so helpful about church membership, and I don't mean just dropping in and visiting a church or being tangentially connected to a church. I mean saying, I commit my life to you and I want you to commit your authority and oversight over me. One of the things that's helpful about church membership when we have that kind of intimate relationship is that you can actually have an accurate view of yourself. The local church is like a high-quality camera with a sharp lens that at regular intervals in your life takes snapshots of your spiritual self and then, you know, shakes the Polaroid out and shows it back to you and says, hey, yeah, this is actually what you look like. But Sean, you may be saying in your heart, I do want to be faithful, but I'm struggling. And I feel like a hypocrite. And all this talk of faithfulness, it, it's, it, it just feels like a sledgehammer that's hitting me in the heart because I'm not as faithful as I should be. And to that, I think every genuine Christian in this room would say, I get it. Neither am I. We're not walking as faithfully as we should be either. But what you should know is that faithfulness is not a zero-sum game. It's not like you either have it or you don't. Faithfulness is described in the book of Galatians as a fruit of the Spirit. The thing that's interesting about the nature of fruit is that it's not a zero-sum, it's not like you either have it or you don't. It's there in seed form and then it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows, right? It's a process. And all of us are at different places in our journey with faithfulness. What I want you to know is that your making it to heaven doesn't depend on your faithfulness, but rather on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. 
your faithfulness is evidence that you actually belong to Jesus, but it is not the way that you make it home to Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author encourages his audience, right? These, these Hebrews who have been suffering persecution, they're facing doubt and temptation, and they, they're thinking about going back to their old life where there is nothing left because Christ has fulfilled all of the law. And he says, don't turn back. Don't turn away from Christ. Hold fast. And this is what he says. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So he's saying, let us be faithful to Christ. And then he says, without wavering. No wavering. Isn't that just like another hit of a sledgehammer right there on your heart? No wavering? But man, I love God's word. Listen to the author of Hebrews as he continues that thought. Let us hold fast, let us be faithful, right? To the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Your hope of faithfulness to God is not in your own strength. It's not in your own white-knuckled discipline and obedience. Your hope in holding fast to Christ faithfully is that the one who saved you is faithful and he is infinitely more faithful than you. The author of Hebrews tells us to hold fast. And then he tells us that the only way that we can hold fast is because Jesus is already holding us fast. Which leads us to our fourth and final point. Who is Jesus? Well, friends, Jesus is the one who makes all of this possible. Jesus is the one who saved Paul when his will was absolutely and completely set against the things of God. Jesus is the one who makes it possible for us to be set apart for God's special purposes. Jesus is the one who even now is empowering us in our faithfulness and faithfully standing before the Father as our advocate for when we fail and are not as faithful as we ought to be. Look at the second line of today's text, verse two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a pretty common way for Paul to introduce his letters. And he's basically saying like, hey, I'm just, I'm writing to remind you of what God has made available to you through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of his spirit, right? Jesus is the one who makes it possible for us to have peace with God. And it comes through the grace of Christ, the shedding of his blood. So what you need to know is that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if your will is still set against Christ, then you have no peace with God. And you never will. Maybe you do feel at peace right now, but that doesn't mean that that peace is yours. It's an illusion. But God has made a way to reconcile us back to himself, to bring peace, not even just between us and him, but between us and all the other humans on the earth that we're constantly at war with. And that peace comes only through Jesus Christ and the shedding of his blood, the redemption of our sins. If you're here this morning and you don't really understand what that means, I'd encourage you to really look around and talk to anybody next to you or come and find me after the service and we can talk more about that gospel. So in closing, I want to revisit the question that I began the sermon with and ask you, who are you? Now maybe my sermon this morning kind of just gave you more questions and didn't really give you the answers you were looking for. Well, I'll encourage you to come back 
as we continue to dig into the text of Ephesians. And my prayer over the next several weeks is that when I ask you who you are, if you're in Christ, you will learn to respond with these words, I am a saint of God, saved by the will of God, to the glory of God, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word uh, continues to boggle our minds and transform our hearts. We, we pray that as individuals, we would not only be changed by your word, but that your church would be strengthened and grounded in the truth today, even more than it was when we first got here this morning. And we pray this in the magnificent name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please stand. <clears throat> When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast.